This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Daniel Durand. Dr. Durand's one of the most innovative, thoughtful physician leaders in the country. He serves as the Chief Clinical Officer of LifeBridge Health in the sort of greater Baltimore area. I was going to talk to us today about the role of Chief Clinical Officer, also some of the other work he does as a medical advisor to famous companies like Under Armour and some other efforts. Uh, Dr. Durand, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us about the role of Chief Clinical Officer? Thanks, Scott. Uh, Chief Clinical Officer is a role that uh, was created at LifeBridge a few years back by a predecessor, um, and uh, and I have currently uh, recently been promoted to the role. Chief Clinical Officers across the country, it's it's a hybrid role typically that has some CMO component to it. So your your typical Chief Medical Officer type responsibilities around medical policy and physician alignment and physician engagement. Uh, but then there's also typically a, an operational add-on, usually with emphasis in the network, and that's the case with this role as well. So I'm responsible for the clinically integrated network, which has over 100 sites of care outside of our hospitals. This includes uh, a medical group that has uh, outpatient offices, as well as other types of affiliated providers. And as is often the case, Sorry, go ahead, Seth. No, no. As as people have these big roles, I you know I talked to you. I'm the chief medical officer of a of a thirty hospital system. You know, how do these roles evolve? As they become more system officers of large institutions, I mean, in the old days, the chief medical officer knew all the doctors. The doctors were often at one hospital, talked them regularly. Was sort of a mix of policemen, encourager, staff bylaws, a whole variety of roles. Now, Chief Clinical Officer, you just mentioned it, 100 sites of care. And LifeBridge is a mid-sized system. It's not even one of these $20 billion systems. It's a mid-sized, great system. How does Chief Clinical Officer, how do they make themselves impactful today? Do we have an impact on the organization in the right way? So I think there's at least two answers to it. There's the answer of someone who's been there long enough um, to have both clinical uh, clinical credibility and have uh, developed relationships over time. And I think it's much easier when you're in that situation. That happens to be my situation. I've been in the geography for two decades, you know, practicing and have been with this system for six years. And so I've had a chance to sort of organically, um, not necessarily be at every one of those 100 plus sites of care, but I know in person over 80% of the doctors and probably have direct relationships with them multi-year uh, of probably half at least. And as I start the role, a big part of this is how do I get out there and listen to meet all the other ones? Because it, it is, as you say, a business of relationships that's really strained by the size of some of these organizations. Um, if one is new to a system entirely, and often that's the case because they'll want to bring in a fresh perspective at the leadership level, I think that is actually much more challenging. And um, that person, you know, uh, just as I plan to do, needs to be listening a lot during the first six to 12 months of their role and, you know, probably talking a lot less. And, and, and how does that, how do you system-wide communicate what you're trying to communicate, whether it's on improvement, whether it's fixing a practice, and whatever it is, does it become this mix of, because obviously, even pre-COVID, once you get big enough, you couldn't do it by walking around. How much is that is email, conversations, calls? How much of it is developing policy? 
it's not just chief clinical officer, but and, and I appreciate it very much the distinction between chief medical officer and chief clinical officer because that that was sort of the first question I had. But but how does one? I mean, it just seems so different than it was ten years ago. And how does one communicate and make sure and it's it's not just the chief medical officer, chief clinical officer role; it's all these roles. How do you make sure your thoughts and direction and encouragement is cascading through the organization? Excellent question. I, it's hard for me to speak to all the other potential roles. Um, the, the role I had the last three years, in my view, um, in order to move the needle, I had to do some very similar things, right? So as chief innovation officer, I was trying to get all those different sites of care, uh, um, along with the five hospitals in the network, to really think at the cutting edge and to be um, on the on the air on the side of action and adopting new things rather than sort of rejecting them and being overly conservative and stagnant. You know, I think it's a similar challenge. And so I'll just talk a little bit about how I went about that and how I plan about uh, going about the CCO role, but I certainly don't have all the answers. When it comes to these things in, in healthcare that are essentially change management or leadership things, I always start with values, right? Start, you know, what, what brings us together? Not so much just the mission statement as it stands on the corporate stationery, uh, but to get to know the key stakeholders, the folks beneath them. Um, you know, what brought them to medicine? What is our core business as an organization and what are we trying to be, uh, to achieve? And so that takes some time and some doing. And thankfully here at LifeBridge, I obviously feel like I've been here long enough that I have a, a good hold of that. Um, chief clinical officers are also often, um, directing their goals towards how do we make the network more accessible? How do we make it so that anybody can get high quality care? How do we make sure that we're excelling in value-based contracts? How do we make sure that populations, including our own employees, are getting really great care and great outcomes for very little cost? That, that is basically the scope of a chief clinical officer in many places in my scope. So what, what I kind of need to do there, right, is I need to educate the clinician network at the most basic level on why those things matter. And why are those things important? And how do they crosswalk to the reasons that those individual service lines and individual doctors chose medicine to begin with. That actually is what I find um, to be the most effective strategy. And that really comes back to constantly bringing people back to the heart of what they do and why they do it and trying to impact culture and, 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 and operations and everything is through constantly being people cognizant. This is why I do what I do. Another question, it, LifeBridge seems to be about the perfect size to really know people throughout the organization. As these organizations get bigger and bigger, is it just that you're that much more reliant on deputies throughout the organization? How do people do it as you get to larger organizations, particularly like chief clinical officer? I mean, I talked to one system where they've got 25 assistant medical directors, so I guess they do it through that. How do you do that as you get bigger and bigger and maintain that connectivity? Yeah, I think that – so what, what typically happens – in all industries, but certainly within healthcare, is you tend to go to some additional level of reporting so that you have potting and grouping, and it's often at a geographic level. So even within our network, we have 100 plus sites of care. Uh, 30 or so of those are, are specifically primary care practices. We have those potted out into different performance groups, POD, when I, when I say pod, as, and this is a common practice across the country, um, so that you can have sort of medical directors at that level over several sites. 
So this idea of sort of a hierarchy that cascades the overall model, but it is made local by the leadership and also by the many operational nuances and changes that you by necessity need to have in population health. Population health, you know, we might have one model and one set of things we're trying to accomplish for patients. For example, if they're getting all their indicated um, you know, uh, evidence-based services, but they're also getting not navigation when they hit a certain level of complexity that they feel that they have uh, near instant access to talking with a nurse if they need one and navigating the health system. Let's say that that was our three-pronged population health model, and often there's a lot that supports it. You might do that totally differently in West Baltimore than you do it in, in Westminster. Okay, those are two different areas we cover. One is on the Pennsylvania border. It's sort of close to, um, you know, really feels like Pennsylvania when you're up there. The other is, is a very complex inner city with a lot of uh, social determinants issues. If we're trying to get those same three things done in different places, we're going to need a different approach that really lends itself to sort of geographically based owners in, in many cases. Um, so your question on how do you make it all cohesive, part of the question I would throw back is in healthcare, how cohesive does it need to be? We need to make sure that you know, we're, we're looking at through human beings and populations of human beings in all these different geographies. We need to think about the science and the evidence of medicine and what we're trying to accomplish for each person. But it, we, we really shouldn't be too anchored on it looking exactly the same in every geography. And so the flexibility around um, the organizational diversity, you know, geographically and otherwise becomes really important. Uh, that's something that I'm not sure you know, to go into the innovation stuff we've talked about in the past, that piece and that locality of it is something that uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these big tech companies that are pioneering in healthcare or attempting to, it's going to be interesting to see how they deal with that concept because they are used to optimizing things on a screen and creating platforms that people then, you know, jump into and customize. Uh, but healthcare is really the business of getting out in these different communities understanding the science and medicine that needs to support them, and also understanding how it may look totally different in one place than it does in the other, even, uh, even if all the goals are the same. But I think that's such an important point, because everybody talks so much about getting rid of variability as the answer to everything. And, and yes, in a lot of spots, if you're doing billing, you better do it all the same. If you're providing oncology care, at a certain level, it's got to be done the same. But for a lot of leadership, there's room for different styles. There's room for different ways of doing things as long as everybody's working really well towards improving care. So it doesn't have to be all perfectly perfect, but it's got to be constantly improving. Is, is that a fair statement, Dr. Durand? I think it's a very fair statement. I think all the problems in healthcare and all the, uh, all the frontiers in healthcare, many of them come down to uh, a form of information failure. So I'll just, you know, all the different buzzwords we throw around in healthcare, precision medicine, value-based care, digital medicine, a lot of these things come down to the fact that we know um, that there are, we have known unknowns. We have a patient, they have an issue. It's usually unknown at the onset what service they need and who best to provide it. And the quickest that we come to that, not just the diagnosis, but the disposition on where they'll receive care, sort of the better we are at addressing their problem and then we match them to that care provider. Sometimes, increasingly, we can match them like over a cell phone, right? Um, but uh, you know, they may need to go into a hospital. And precision medicine is basically the same exact thing. I mean, figuring out the exact medicine somebody needs based on the genomic code. Um, Value-based care is figuring out how to do that and, and think about price at the same time. So all these things 
come down to information failure in a way. And um, I partly, I view the role of the chief clinical officer. The reason the educational component I mentioned up front is so important is the most powerful way to prevent information failure is to really inform the providers on what we're trying to achieve and make sure they're up to date on the resources. Uh, they're going to be up to date on the medicine and science within their licenses. They sort of have to do that. that that's not the, the main thrust of my job. My job is to help overcome the information failure and have these providers, whether they're physicians or MPs, practicing medicine in a way that more quickly matches their patient population with what they need. Another question. People that know you know that you're as good a person as they come and, and, and very smart and very mission-driven. Talk about some of the other interesting things that you do. You serve as a medical advisor to Under Armour, the, the apparel company. None of their clothes seem to fit me exactly right, but I assume you're not focused on that. But what, is, what does it mean to be a medical advisor to some of these companies? What, what, it, what, what kind of things are you working at and talking to them about? Well, most of the advising relationships are with digital health companies, and I'm usually talking about one, one flavor or another of that information failure aspect um, and, and trying to help them understand healthcare and better deploy their tools on behalf of patients. Most of these relationships are also uh, related to my time as Chief Innovation Officer at LifeBridge, and I, I con conduct these relationships through LifeBridge, actually. They've been great about that, where it's essentially uh, the organization has a relationship with me through LifeBridge Health. And that's the case with Under Armour. Under Armour is an interesting one. Uh, during the early phases of the pandemic, LifeBridge, like everybody else, had no real means of adopting, um, getting to, to, to operationalize the, the mask mandate. We were enthusiastic about it. I think we were one of the first hospitals in Maryland to mandate masks, but we very quickly were running out of masks. Uh, these are the sort of average everyday masks, not the uh, medical grade surgical masks or N95s. So as all that was going on uh, in March and early April of 2020, we were going in a lot of different directions for solutions. Um, Neil Meltzer, our CEO, uh, called me up and said, Dan, you know, we want you to lead up the effort to try to figure this out. And um, we're willing to build a factory and produce our own masks. And we have several people here who have a background in the garment industry. So we actually went along that path internally, electric electrifying one of our spaces so that it could have many sewing machines, for example, and, and sort of going down that route very quickly, uh, like kind of a moonshot pace to build our own textile factory. But I also thought out of the back of my mind, um, you know, there are many people that know more about this than us, and some of them are local. So through back channels and really the network of, of, my, of our CEO, Neil, I was able to get in touch with the innovation team at Under Armour. And they at the time were idle in, in a way like most of society and looking to help. And they had been working with a couple of academic medical centers, but they were um, a little bit loath to adopt some of the methodologies. So the methodologies specifically were the type of fabric they were using. It was a fully synthetic fabric. It wasn't, um, didn't have cotton like a traditional surgical mask. And they were also kind of classically constructed and, and knitted uh, what, what those other folks were looking for. Whereas Under Armour was kind of cutting this from synthetic fiber out of one um, one single cut of fabric, and then they had an, an origami type method where you could fold this into a functional mask. Anyway, long story short, I, I, it, it became very clear to me that they knew what they were doing probably better than us. We spent uh, a couple of really sleepless nights assuring ourselves that we were comfortable with the science of it, that it was probably just about as good as a surgical mask when used um, when used properly. And that's not like a, a commercial claim, but this is just the, the reality of the early pandemic. We had to find something we were comfortable with good enough. 
And then we were off to the races on it because we, we moved faster to accept it than the other health systems. They then started working very closely with us. Um, so the last part of the story is uh, we came up with a, pro a, a, techno uh, a process by which they would procure and cut the, the fabric, but we actually used that textile factory we built not to make it from scratch, but instead to do the final finishing um, stages of the good, really the folding and packaging. So we basically built a factory together and a supply chain together in the space of two or three weeks. And that model wound up supplying not just LifeBridge, but many other ho hospitals, including Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, Innova, a variety of other ones in the, in the middle Atlantic area, um, with some, you know, not all their PPE, but with some PPE. So it was a great effort. And just the relationships forged during that um, couple of months of working together uh, led to some other, um, you know, some other work we're doing together. But it's just magnificent. So the surgical mask, the mask I'm sure would fit me well, but I'll have to get into better shape toward the underarm clothing in general. But but just magnificent, doctor. Just fantastic. I, I want to thank you, Daniel, again, for joining us on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. It's just always a pleasure to visit with you and hear what you're doing here, what LifeBridge is doing. What a magnificent organization. Uh, one of the great mid-sized health systems in the country. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you, Scott. It's always a pleasure.